Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. I'm glad you could join us. Uh, we're going to fill in some blanks from our last podcast. It was Understanding and Tracing History of the Republican Party. Uh, that was part one. We're going to give you part two. I'm Matt Shockey. Sitting across from me, as always, is Jeff Hudson. And Jeff, for one of the first times in a long time, I clearly recognize the beer that is sitting on our table. Why don't you tell us a little about the iconic can that is in front of me? Well, it's not as red as it used to be. No, we already had a discussion. We yeah. Is it red or is it orange? It definitely is a red. It's a red. But, but it's, it's not, not the red, red. Right. Yeah. Now, I got it's, – uh, it is Budweiser, which most people my age have heard of. Uh, I don't know if young people have heard of Budweiser. <laughs> I think they called it America for a while. So <laughs> now before you take too good a look at that can – what unusual ingredient does Budweiser have in it? Um, do they have some sort of woody taste to it? It does. It has the beechwood aging. Beechwood aging. That's what I was thinking yeah. of. Yes. But as an ingredient. That's all I would know is beechwood aging. It has rice. They use rice in it. Oh, okay. Uh, I've heard of rice in beer. Yeah, but most American beers didn't have rice. I think it had a little something to do with it being uh, started to be made in St. Louis. Okay. Where they had access to stuff coming up the Mississippi okay. River. Because Choice rice hops, rice. And, and what a lot of people don't know is that rice was grown here in America. It was right. one of the crops that early slaves, before cotton was planted, right. uh, there was lots of rice grown in America. It isn't anymore, I don't... Well, no, there's still rice. Yeah. In California, there's huge rice fields. I, I stand corrected on that. Go ahead. Tell me a little bit about well, Budweiser, you know, the king uh, of beers. Adolphus Bush, a German immigrant, came over and he worked on uh, as a boat clerk you know, in, uh, in St. Louis... On the docks there. But he met a guy named Anhauser. And, uh, you know, he owned a brewery. And uh, Adolphus, uh, you know, sharp uh, young immigrant guy, uh, married his daughter and Lily Anhauser. And so you had, you know, the start of the first really national brewery in the United States, Adolphus was the first guy to pasteurize his beer. Okay. So you could ship it farther. Right. Remember, they, they weren't canning it back then. They were putting it in, in bottles with stoppers on them. And he actually started uh, refrigerated shipping them in refrigerated railroad cars. So, again, he extended. And Budweiser became the first national brand. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and drink a little... Budweiser. I forget the taste of Budweiser. I haven't drank <laughs> this since I, college, maybe. Yeah, I can't remember the last Budweiser I tasted. And you know, it's. I don't think it's bad. It has a, a flavor I'm familiar with from uh, hours and hours of drinking beer in college <laughs> and in the summertime, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it is a national brewery. It's designed for a national palate. It's not. It doesn't. The flavor is very mild. Right. Uh, there's nothing really out there to like really grab the taste buds like on some of the things we've been drinking. Um, but that's not what the national palate is. No, it, and it it's doesn't a, have as much alcohol in it. No. It's something you can feel comfortable. Like you know, this is still good beer if you're at a barbecue or if you want to sit down with a pizza because it's not gonna. You're not just gonna taste the flavor of the beer. Because it doesn't have a lot of flavor. Yeah, let's be honest. But you know, it's okay. It's a. It's a. It is a. You know what? It is a uh, used Chevy truck. It's going to get you there. It's going to do the job. 
and you're going to be happy with it in the end, right? Yep. It's not anything flashy. All right. Good job. Uh, I'm going to drink some Budweiser here. Um, this Bud's for you. This It's the king of beers, it says. Yeah. Uh, we had a great turnout the other day at uh, TELUS 360. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out to that once again. Also to remind you, if, uh, if you would like to have Jeff and I come out to your organization and talk to you about an issue, um, not to preach to you and try to convert you to any particular ideology, but if you want more depth on an issue and you would like to have an open discussion, uh, immigration, abortion, uh, we could do gun rights. We could do elect, uh, the Electoral College. There's a, there's a multitude of issues we could discuss. So if you'd like to give us a shout out, you can do that. Uh, our email is historypoliticsandbeer at gmail, uh, same as Twitter and also on Facebook. So let's get to the pod today, Jeff. Last week, we cut the pod a little short because we were getting a little long and we didn't want the pod to be too long. And we left the Republican Party. We were really getting close to Ronald Reagan. Yeah, we're, we're getting into Reagan a little bit. But you and I were talking before recording this. I think to make that good leap to Reagan, uh, we need to kind of go backwards a little bit. And we sort of – I must say we skipped over a president. But I think if you're talking about Republican presidents of the 20th century, we certainly I don't think gave Eisenhower – uh, enough time. So let's talk a little bit about Eisenhower, uh, his place in the Republican Party, and then we can bring it m- closer to Reagan. I will tell you the joke my dad told me about Eisenhower uh, when he was president. The joke went, did you hear about the Eisenhower doll? You wind it up and watch it do nothing for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, Eisenhower is an interesting guy, and that, that the impression that he wasn't doing a whole lot was uh, – was common, but he's one of those guys. If you read history books like uh, I do once in a while, his stock just keeps rising and rising and rising. And where a lot of historians consider him one of the ten best presidents in American history. So it's interesting. Uh, a guy he ran for the Republican nomination in part to prevent a Robert Taft from getting the nomination. Uh, Robert Taft was wanted to go back to sort of an isolationist, non-interference. Okay. He didn't like NATO, and uh, Eisenhower, who had been supreme commander and, and uh, of our Allied forces, uh, didn't and, and saw the effects, of course, in World War II of, of not intervening in time to stop some things, was adamantly opposed to that. And that's one reason he chose the Republic, because the Democrats would have given him the nomination, too. But that's one reason he chose to— So we, he wanted to avoid a mistake. I mean, yeah. if you look at post-World War One, it was Harding that this idea of returning to normalcy and going into isolation that helps fuel World War II. And Eisenhower was— smart enough to read the tea leaves to know America can't go back into its shell. We have to be a world player. We have to be on the world stage. Yeah, and Ike's main goal in foreign policy was containing communism. He followed the Truman Doctrine, uh, you know, Truman, the president before him, who's laid out a doctrine and said America would help any country that's threatened with a communist takeover. Uh, he threatened China with the use of nuclear weapons. To I didn't get, know that, did Yeah, he? to get him to the table 
uh, at uh, on the Korea, uh, Korea, and okay. he, he was able to end end the war with that. That's one thing he did campaign on. He campaigned on the idea on ending. He would actually war. go to Korea himself yeah. and try to bring an end to the war, and he did. Yes, and, you know, I mean, he he ended that conflict. Uh, of course, it, it still goes on in one form or another. He sent aid to help France retain control of Vietnam. And he supported military coups in Iran and Guatemala when those governments were seen as being uh, threatened by a leftist takeover, basically. So he was a cold warrior. He he was going to do uh, like Truman. Uh, but he wasn't suggesting. a fearmonger because he's he's cutting he's cutting the budget. I mean, he's cutting national defense. So he is not using the Cold War as a tool to manipulate the people and say, you need to be afraid, afraid, afraid. We need a bigger and bigger military. It seems that he is very much a moderate and sees the threat in its true light, what it really is and what we need to do to fight this threat. Right. And he had something called uh, the new look right, about the military. And, and he recognized that it was sucking up a lot of the budget. He was a fiscal conservative, which is, uh, you know, a lot of presidents say, and especially that they're fiscal conservatives. Uh, a lot of them who say that aren't really. And Eisenhower did not want that budget to just balloon up under his watch. And the mili- if, if you kept increasing army divisions, that's what was going to happen. So he relied more on a nuclear deterrent. Yeah, his and- uh, his threat was heavy bombers. Yeah. Were they not? That's what they were cheaper uh, than boots on the ground. Uh, so you have heavy bombers, and then your hammer is um, a nuclear weapon. Right. Now. Kennedy is going to change that with something called flexible response that's going to end up biting him in the butt in getting him deeper and deeper into Vietnam, which would be a whole separate pot. But Eisenhower is a fiscal conservative, and he actually – he not only walks the walk, he talks the talk. Um, and it would have been very easy for Eisenhower post-World War II to balloon the budget, putting more in, this, in defense uh, by using – because it was a, a red scare in the 1950s, been very easy to balloon to defense and, try and get more support and well, scare people. Well, you talk about fear-mongering. Exactly. Uh, you know, McCarthy, uh, one thing Eisenhower used to be criticized, this is something historians are looking at now, is, is that he didn't go after McCarthy hard enough and all the fear-mongering. And we now know that he used executive privilege to stop McCarthy from investigating, especially when McCarthy went after the Army officers. Right. I mean, that's... Eisenhower is a West Point graduate. That was a mistake. And he let McCarthy kind of dangle his uh, his allegations out there, but he wasn't able to investigate these because, you know, if you if, if you go in looking and looking and looking, maybe you'll find some army officer that, you know, it, but you know, Eisenhower didn't let him and he kind of let McCarthy dangle and we all know what happened to McCarthy. You know, he, he his, his career ended and, and uh, became an alcoholic and he died and and Personally, everybody knew he loathed McCarthy, but we didn't know until more recently that he was pretty active in in trying to circumscribe his investigations. But, uh, you know, Eisenhower uh, coined the phrase military-industrial complex. He thought that was a big threat to us, and he said so in his farewell address. Uh, The economy under his stewardship, uh, GDP went up, job creation went up, stock market went up along with median income. And here's a, a a biggie. The national debt came down. The national debt came down while all that was going up. Uh, maybe one thing that helped that is that the, the highest marginal tax rate 
during the Eisenhower administration was 91%. So I think yeah, a lot of people don't know that, that yeah, the Marshall tax rates were that high. For four, for, for uh, a married couple filing $400,000, after $400,000, it was 91%. So uh, now in domestic policy, he believed in what he called dynamic conservatism. Yes. And he supported New Deal programs. I'm going to read this one quote, and it's going to be pivotal to what were the rest of the things we talk about. He said, should any political party attempt to establish Social Security, uh, attempt to abolish Social Security, unemployment insurance, and eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. (laughs) There's a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are a few Texas oil millionaires and occasional politician or businessmen from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. <laughs> so uh, he was a he was a moderate. He was a moderate. And he also, I mean, he was he, a realist. He's a realist, and we'll talk about attempts to uh, attack Social Security and just how well they they work out. Now he did uh, sign into law our largest infrastructure program ever in interstate, America. The interstate uh, bill to create an interstate highway system. And he was a moderate. He didn't support social engineering. He didn't think it was the government's business to get in and change customs in the states. However, when the Brown decision was made and it was attempted to be enforced at Little Rock. It was that was selected as the first Southern high school to to be integrated after the Brown versus Bo- uh, Topeka Board of Education, uh, and there was riots, and the state was resisting, and the governor Faubus was resisting. He sent in the unit. He sent into Normandy. He sent in the hundred first paratroopers, and again, one of the things Eisenhower used to is criticized for sometimes is. It's not really pushing civil rights at, at this time, but he was a moderate. He was a constitutionalist, right? And you know, he understood the Constitution, uh, the the American Constitution, supreme over any state law. And when the state uh, tried to to uh, not go along with the federal court decision, which was a unanimous decision, he sent in the paratroopers, and they integrated the school. Which is one of the boldest moves any president has ever made to enforce a court decision. Uh, Eisenhower is criticized if one of the weak, if Eisenhower had a weakness, it was his stance on civil rights. Um, and I think his stance on civil rights falls into his idea of following the Constitution, uh, that there is federalism. Uh, the federal government just can't step all over the states. Uh, if they are following laws, you may not like what those laws are, but you, the state has a right to do that. But they don't have a right to defy the Supreme Court. Right. We do have federal supremacy, and he defended that, and he defended it very strongly. Uh, Governor Falbus called out the National Guard, uh, and Eisenhower nationalizes the Guard and sends in the 101st, like you said, sends in the 101st Airborne, and we get some very uh, uh, famous photographs of the Little Rock Nine being taken to school uh, with mounted machine guns on. Soldiers had bayonets. So yeah, and he wasn't fooling around. They went to school that day. Yeah. So, so this is. 1950s moderate dynamic conservatism. Right. Um, next president is Kennedy. Next president is LBJ. And 
Richard Nixon, right? Which is Eisenhower's vice president, uh, probably put on the ticket for with Eisenhower because he was a rabid anti-communist, and it gave the Republican ticket a little bit of an edge, maybe a little bit of a bulldog, because Eisenhower, though he was a supreme commander, looked like your grandpa. Yeah. Um, and so Richard Nixon, and he was a, We now know he's a very smart man, and he knew people. Liked his image as a grandpa, as someone who was a moderate, right. who's going to uh, talk in a reasonable tone of voice. So he was smart enough to let somebody else do that work. Right. And Nixon goes from the ash heap of history to being president of the United States. He's a forgotten part of the Republican Party. And he then is elected president. And we have another change in the Republican Party as Nixon embraces the religious right. Well, yeah. Now, yeah. You let's, go let's talk about the coalition. Okay. Now, let's. I mean, Nixon is to some extent going to be a New Deal president as well. He's not going to muck with Medicare. He's not going to muck with Social Security. So he's going to. Uh, he's actually going to expand environmental laws, uh, but and he's also going to embrace an internationalist foreign policy. I mean, he's the opening to China. Right. And so there's a lot of ways where you could see uh, Nixon as following in Eisenhower's footsteps. Now, the coalition that is going to make up the Republican Party changes with Nixon. You're right. It's the uh, Nixon is going to pursue something he calls the Southern strategy, and he's also going to start to embrace the religious right. And how does he do that? Well, it starts with Barry Goldwater. Uh, Barry Goldwater starts, uh, I'm not going to say catering to the religious right, but certainly starts setting out the table uh, to bring the religious right, the evangelicals, under the tent of conservatism. Uh, Barry Goldwater is destroyed in the election of uh, 1964, and that scares a lot of evangelicals. I mean, it wasn't even close. They do embrace Nixon. Nixon uses uh, this group. He invites um, uh, Billy Graham to come to his inauguration to give the prayer. Uh, it's the first time that we have a evangelical leader and a president openly endorsing each other. Uh, Billy Graham goes to the White House. He is going to sit with uh, with Nixon Um Nixon goes to Billy Graham revivals and talks at these revivals as almost their political rallies. And this is going to change how religion interacts with politics. I was watching an interview with Jerry Falwell, and Jerry Falwell was um, the creator of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he died a few years ago. But he said when he was growing up and he was going to college and seminary, it was preached as a given that history and politics don't mix ever. That if you save someone's soul – Religion and politics. Yes. I'm sorry. What did I say? History. Okay. Religion and politics. If you save someone's soul, then good will follow out of that. You will cure nature's – society's ills. You will cure political ills because now good people, good holy people are going to be uh, taking these uh, leadership roles. But Jerry Falwell said, well, that was all well and good in a perfect society, but we don't live that way. Religion has to be involved in politics. And what Nixon called the silent majority, um, Falwell is going to call the moral majority. And he is going to openly 
this idea of a moral majority is not – it's a political group. It is – it's not a religious group. It's a political group. Uh, you have Catholics. You have all sorts of conservatives. You have Jews in this group. And they are looking at pro-life, pro-America, pro-military um, candidates they are drawn to Jimmy Carter because Jimmy Carter is an evangelical. He speaks the language of evangelical. He's a, he's a Southern Baptist. And the evangelicals' ears perked at that. But as a president, Carter didn't give them what they wanted. He was pro-choice. He was a liberal. It almost was sort of confusing. Um, when Reagan meets with the moral majority, he famously says, I know that you are a, a group and you cannot endorse me, but I endorse you, Okay, which is a great way of linking this um, – moral majority religious group and hitching it to the Republican wagon. Well, another thing Nixon did, Nixon, when he was in college, he he, uh, he wasn't a member of the in crowd. There was an elite group uh, where he, Whittier College in, in, uh, in uh, California, where he went to college, and he started uh, his own group called the Orthogonians. Who were this is new for me. I know yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he started his, his own group, and and they were not the cool kids, and uh, it became sort of like his group, and he ended up uh, being elected like class president and so forth because he he did this, but he ran to some extent. He catered to their resentment of the kids who were the country club kids and and uh, the kids who were in the popular fraternities and. And he used the same uh, methods, really, when he got to the presidency. I mean, uh, you know, he had uh, he did talk about the the silent majority, and elites were kind of frowned on. This is where right. you were, and uh, you know, uh, he started to break away some uh, working class. Uh, voters who normally voted for the Democrats, and they voted for him because he was a law and order president. And, you know, they are tired of those seeing big, huge demonstrations and people openly violating drug laws, the, right. the, the silent majority. And he had an attack dog, too, his vice president. He had learned that. And Spiro Agnew, mm -hmm. you know, went after the press and, uh, and called the press uh, 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 various things, but mainly accused him of being elitist and out of touch, which is th – that's been going on a long time with the Republican Party. Yeah, so you see the formation here of a new um, – Nattering nabobs of negativity. What's that from? That's Agnew. That's oh, what okay. he called the press. Nattering nabobs of negativity. From Spiro Agnew. Yeah. Wow. He leaves the vice president, which gives us Ford, the only man to be president and vice president, but never elected to either position, which is always a great presidential trivia question. Nixon – and go back to your, what you were saying about Nixon. Nixon, Reagan – and go back to Barry Goldwater too. Nixon – Goldwater, Nixon, Reagan – are starting to form this new coalition where you have evangelicals who are going to be voting. And the thing that you really pulled here- And white Southerners. And there's, exactly. there's, there's, and, an over, and there's an overlap of those, of course. And this working class, which you think would be democratic, but um, you know we see Reagan riding his horse on the ranch, this idea that you can have a beer with these guys. They're in that the left is being painted more and more as elite, more and more as um, people that don't aren't in the mainstream. Uh, and the Democrat, the Republicans do a good job cultivating that image. Um, I want to say something about Reagan, and I complete. Oh, so when Reagan was elected, not only was he elected, but twelve liberal senators 
lost elections that year as well. Now, some of that could just be because people didn't like Jimmy Carter. Uh, you got to remember what was going on in 1980. We had the Iran hostage situation. You had Asian of Afghanistan. Right. And so people weren't real happy with Jimmy Carter. So how much it was evangelicals and how much of it was just simply uh, Carter fatigue and the economy was crappy in the 1970s. You had stagflation. But Reagan – does a great job of pulling this coalition together and really and expanding the coalition. He's, and, he's getting any working class voters in Michigan and Indiana too, not just down south. And it it holds. It holds to even to this day uh, that you have the work, working class Americans like law and order. Um, you have religious evangelicals still. Uh, voting Republican. You have white Southerners still voting Republican. Um, this is a very strong coalition that the Republicans have built. One of the downsides of this coalition is it's not getting bigger. Right. This coalition is shrinking in size. Um, because of the electoral college, how electoral college is set up and because of the Senate, how the Senate is set up, they can have less numbers and still win elections and still have lots of influence, but not sure how long that can last. Well, let's just talk about Reagan a little bit, how he's like Eisenhower and how he was different. Now, he believed in an active foreign policy. Yes. And he was his main focus was on uh, limiting the spread of communism. He called uh, you know, Russia the evil USSR, the evil empire. Went to the Berlin Wall, famously said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." He was a strong supporter of our post-war alliances. He saw them as key NATO and uh, and other organizations, key to containing communism. Um, now, one thing that I and and he also was concerned about the spread of communism, leftist governments in in our hemisphere. Uh, he supported the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and he also mounted Operation Urgent Fury. Do you know what Operation Urgent Fury was? Sounds like going to the bathroom after Taco Bell. <laughs> I, uh, All right. I'm going with Operation Urgent Fury. It was our invasion of Granada. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So anyhow. Which I know, honestly, I know nothing about. Well, I think there was some uh, medical school there and they were th- – anyhow, yeah. uh, you know, we were able to take Granada. <laughs> There's a surprise. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like take Gilligan's Island, isn't it? I don't want to make fun because I'm sure people lost their lives there and that's – I shouldn't be uh, making light of a situation where Americans lost their lives. And, now, Br- and the British were involved in that as well. But the uh, – you know, he, he believed in uh, peace through strength, as he said. He had the largest peacetime increase in military spending, spending 40 percent more uh, than had been previously spent. And this, uh, this was the biggest – Spending increase uh, during peacetime. Uh, but, and to give Reagan, you know, one reason a lot of people like Reagan is he had certainly principles, but he wasn't quite a slave to his ideology. No, he was not. And when Gorbachev comes into power, he senses a person he can make uh, 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 deals with. And he goes and he he makes this intermediate range and shorter range missile treaty, the INF. And it's really the first time when uh, uh, Americans and the Soviet Union agreed to start really reducing the number of missiles, not just stopping, but start to reduce the number of missiles, itself, types of missiles and certain types that we have aimed at each other. Um, 
is he is uh, an issue that starts to come up at this time is immigration. He passes the Immigration Reform and Control Act, and this is what he says about that. The the legalization provisions in this act will go far to improve the lives of a class of individuals who must now hide in the shadows without access to many of the benefits of a free and open society. Very soon, many of these men and women will be able to step into the sunlight and ultimately, if they choose, they may may become Americans. So... um, in keeping with most Republican presidents up until that time, he was in favor of an activist foreign policy, but also not open borders, but he wasn't anti-immigration. You know, immigration was, uh, even though this act put some uh, penalties on people who would hire illegal immigrants to keep them from doing that, he wasn't, there's, there's, I have not seen anything in Reagan's speeches that would uh, lend me to think he was anti-immigration. I think he supported legal immigration into the United States the pretty only, wholeheartedly. The only negative that I can really put to Ronald Reagan um, that I think history will judge him poorly on is his reaction to the AIDS epidemic um, and not moving fast enough to try to get help to these people. Because of his coalition with the religious right and part of that coalition was protecting traditional values and traditional families and traditional marriage. And because the uh, the AIDS hit the gay population first, uh, there was a long delay there uh, for the federal government stepping in to really try to help that. Um, I do see that as a negative for the Republican Party, uh, though that doesn't last. The, though the, the, uh, traditional marriage side of it certainly lasts. The federal government does step in and start addressing the AIDS epidemic as it starts spreading. Um, well, the the other thing I think Reagan does that uh, because there was this thing. I mean, he believed in supply side economics, which is basically let's help the the businesses, the providers of jobs. Let's deregulate too. Let's let's help them by deregulation, you know, letting them have freedom right. to innovate and so forth. Let's reduce tax burdens. Uh, the highest tax bracket initially went from 70 to 50 percent marginal tax rate under Reagan and later to 28 percent. So he reduced the tax rate. And people were going, well, gee, uh, is this going to work? And actually, after a short recession, uh, the GDP began to climb and inflation rates went down. Where it didn't work is he he promulgated this thing called the the Laffer Curve, which was the idea that you're going to have so much business growth when you lower taxes and deregulate uh, that the government's still not going to lose revenue because you're going to have the GDP is going to grow so fast and you're still going to be able to tax that. Well, this didn't happen, and Reagan increased the debt uh, uh, by more than any other. Pres- modern president. It wasn't a wartime Based president. Based on percentage. Yeah, and, and, and it wasn't a wartime president. I think you can look at uh, Woodrow Wilson and during World War II, certainly FDR and World War, uh, excuse Woodrow Wilson, World War I, and FDR and World War II. But in peacetime, Reagan adds one, uh, he increases the, na- the debt by 186%. So it didn't, the idea that you could grow the economy so much that you're going to recoup these lower tax rates just didn't materialize. It did, and it's never worked. It no. hasn't worked. All right. So let's fast forward to Trump. Yes. Um, what 
and I, this is a tough one for me to talk about because it's, it's tough to talk about current presidents because we're too close to it. Um, history and historians will figure Trump out down the road. It's really hard to be in the middle of the storm and uh, talk about it and understand what's going to be important. Um, Do you want to start out with his coalition? Okay, we can start. We can talk about his coalition. Well, I mean, it's go ahead. You can talk about it. That coalition it surprised people when he when he won, but should have it, considering what Nixon and Reagan had already laid the groundwork. For? No, it really shouldn't have. I mean, we we look at sometimes we say that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party has shifted and kind of replaced each other. And a lot of times we talk about race and African Americans and how they vote. Um, but there's another side to that, and that's how working class Americans are voting. Uh, it used to be the stronghold of the, the Democratic Party, and they are feeling abandoned by, I think, the political left. Uh, They've seen the political left as elitist, uh, championing issues that really aren't important to them. And not doing anything about uh, the stuff that's hollowing out their communities. I mean, right. I mean Clinton is pretty pro-business, and he, you know, if, if a corporation – moves uh, some money and, and, and builds a plant in China instead of Indiana. I mean, Clinton wasn't doing anything about that. No, and the recognition that even though even though economically none of this stuff really makes sense, but the idea that I'm going to slap a tariff on everything coming into this country to protect American jobs. If you move that – if you move your plant to Mexico, watch the tariff I'm going to put on you. You'll be sorry that you did that. I'm going to open up those coal mines again so we can get these coal miners back to work. All that stuff is sort of not going to happen, but it is speaking a language that the working man understands. Well, at least you're speaking to them. Right. Instead of just kind of Yeah, the not. bottom has fallen out here. I don't yeah. have a job mining anymore. My job moved to Mexico. And because my job now in Mexico, I used to be making $25 an hour. Now I'm making $12 an hour. Um, this idea that we're going to have green energy and we're going to re-educate people, that doesn't ring true to a lot of people. That's what the left may be saying. But this law and order, you know, this idea, I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to prevent illegals from coming over and stealing your jobs and driving down wages. It is really almost this return to normalcy almost. I'm going to bring back the way that things used to be. It's not going to happen, but he is speaking to those people. Um, and, and, and he's speaking, uh, to be honest, to their racial fears and racism uh, in, in a way that and and this is uh, – there was certainly some of that in Nixon and in Ronald Reagan. Although they didn't do it overtly, they spoke the language of states' rights rather than federal intervention in terms of and, – and, and that meant to a lot of Southerners uh, at the time, federal intervention in, in their way of life as through the Civil Rights Act, as through the Voting Rights Act, as through affirmative action. So um, – that that might have spoken to their their racial animosities. Trump addresses those much more directly, right? When he talks about in his, when matter of fact, when he announced his candidacy, and he talks about people coming over from Mexico and being murderers and rapers, rapists, or, or, or and even I'm sure our, some of them are good. Yeah, and, and and even the allegations that he makes during the primaries that uh, the first black president isn't really from here, and 
therefore has a cloud of illegitimacy here. Like well, he's, you know, yeah, he's born in Kenya. Yeah, that 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 clearly has racial undertones. Yeah, so he's, it's what he's they a, call a bell. Uh, you know, a, bell a dog whistle. whistle. Dog whistle. Yes, yeah, that what you call a dog whistle. So Trump. I guess the question we need to ask for Trump is this, and I think that we can talk a lot about Trump's policies, but I really want to hear your thoughts on this question. Is Trump an anomaly or is it the path that the party – is this the future of the Republican Party? Well, I don't think he's an anomaly in the sense that he is speaking to that coalition, and that's what got him elected. Right. That coalition of evangelicals. I guess we could probably say some older Americans as well, more traditional Americans, and working class people, working class white people. Uh, and he is highly critical, just like Nixon, of the elites and of the press. So those attacks, that line, and, and, and he, he feeds off the resentment that people have for – the people they feel uh, uh, they feel think they're superior to to themselves. You're a deplorable. Yeah, right. The idea yeah, that and Hillary, Hillary just fit. You know, just fell into that trap. She actually just helped to make his his case. So in that way, I see him as sort of a logical extension of those pol- the political. Part of that, his policies on immigration, his policies on supporting NATO and and being a a um, you know interventionist foreign policies, uh, th- those are things Trump directly repudiated in order to help his appeal to that coalition. That coalition sees those things as elitist, as mm-hmm. something that hurts the heartland. And that worked for him. Now, whether they'll work for him again, I don't know. Well, that's what I mean. Is this yeah. an anomaly yeah. or is this a path of the Republican Party? This is change- a, ha- Have they gone down a cul-de-sac? Exactly. And, and they're just going to try and go, well, this isn't, this isn't going to hold. This coalition isn't going to get us elected year after year after year. We're going to have to get away from this idea of nationalism and America first. We're going to have to be involved internationally. We can't have tariffs. You know, We have to play the game. Are Republicans going to bounce to what we see a more Reagan-esque Republican Party or are we going to move? And, and, and the style of Reagan was so different, and the style of Eisenhower. Just well, people like Reagan. People like lo- I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. I think Reagan was sixty some percent job approval right. when he left. Like I don't, I don't remember anybody. Trump has a negative liking Reagan. Yeah, Trump has he disagreed a, with them, but I don't know if anyone disliked him. Yeah, I'm sure there. Are, I'm sure there are people who disliked him because that's the way politics is. But he had. <laughs> because of his demeanor, uh, and I actually think his love for America, I think he loved the country. He was a person somewhat able to get outside of himself. You know, he had a, a, a thing on his desk, I think, it said that you, you can get anything done you want in the world as long as you don't have to take credit for it. And you can't imagine Trump having that on no. there. There would be no reason for anything for Trump to get something done if he couldn't take credit for it. He was just a more likable character, as was Eisenhower. And that's I think those two things together make the Republican Party a cul-de-sac. It's 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 the fact that their base is 
is dwindling and diminishing, which makes them more rabid followers. They right. feel in peril, and Trump speaks to that. But Trump doesn't expand that. There's nobody listening. To, in fact, he turns people off. He, You know, women voters were just pivotal in this last midterm, just pivotal. And they came out and they voted against, uh, you know, Republicanism. They voted against Trump. It's hard. Well, did they vote against Republicanism or they vote against Trump? Well, I think they voted against Trump. Okay. I actually think if, if, if Ronald Reagan had been the president right. – I don't think you would have had that same turnout. I mean, I mean he's, 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 he's motivating the opposition. I mean, I always think that America at its core is moderate Republican like Eisenhower. I think that's the way to win elections. Um, where I don't know if we'll ever see another Dwight Eisenhower uh, simply. I mean, he, he could walk to walk and talk to talk. You know, he could do things simply because of, I mean, who can cut the federal who can cut the military budget? Well, maybe the Supreme Allied Commander can do that. Yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? Accuse him of being un-American or right. not caring about our defense? You well, couldn't do it. He right. was now, unassailable. Somebody like Clinton, of course, you can attack them. Somebody like George W. Bush, you could attack. There's lots of people you can attack on. But so I think I don't know if we're going to see another Eisenhower, but the way, or see another Reagan, or see well, yeah. And remember Reagan. People like Reagan and Obama are rare birds. You know, they are just great political machines, right? I mean, whether you agreed with Reagan- I or- saw both of them speak. Amazing. Right. I was amazed by, but in different ways, they were amazing. You know, I saw a rehearsed speech from Ronald Reagan. Well, guess what? If you're an actor for many years and a pretty good one, and you have a speech to give, and also Reagan, I think he loved America. He, he, he loved people. He loved people, and you could hear that in his voice, that great Midwestern voice. He's from Illinois. And I saw I saw Obama. I was probably ten feet away watching him speak. Just electric energy. Those kind of political talents are not normal. One of my favorite stories of Reagan is he was trying to get people to you know were number one. He was trying to get the people to hold up their fingers that they were number one. And uh, as he was leaving the event, he was in his limousine. Some protesters came up and gave him the middle finger through the window. And his advisors were there, and he said, "See, it's catching on." <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah, I don't know if that story is true, but I, I I wish it to be true. So, you know, I, I there's really, as you can hear us talking here, there's a lot to cover, and I think the Re- Republican Party is sometimes more interesting to talk about than the Democratic Party um, because of there's, there seems to be a lot of moving parts and how things have changed over the last twenty years. Well, so, I think the change and continuity. It's almost a little easier to talk about. Yes, the, the, the Democratic Party seems to be. Herky jerky in some ways. I mean, they lost that emphasis of the New Deal uh, uh, that ke- kept that coalition together for so long. Uh, the emphasis on union members and working class people, and they lost that. And well, this goes back to what we, this goes back to what we talked about in the last podcast that the Republicans are easier easier to follow because they have four or five core beliefs. That the party circles around, and the Democrats has challenged some of those beliefs. And the Democrats are such a huge party; it's the flavor of the month. You don't know: is it going to be gay marriage? Is it going to be transgender rights? Is it going to be environment? Is it going to be minimum wage? Is it going to be uh, health care for all? Uh, immigration, um, plastic bags being—I mean, what is the issue that you're going to coalesce around? 
And I think that's exactly what it comes off. It comes across as being herky jerky. So there we are. Uh, I'm sure we left a lot of gaps in all of that. So if you would like to uh, email us and let us know uh, what we did wrong or what we would did, did right, we would love to hear from you. Uh, the, uh, the email address is historypoliticsnbeer at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, bye-bye. Bye. Let me turn us off.